Good morning. This is the Word of God, Job chapter 3, verses 20 through 26. Why is light given to him who is in misery, and life to the bitter in soul, who long for death, but it comes not, and dig for it more than for hidden treasures, who rejoice exceedingly and are glad when they find the grave? Why is light given to a man whose way is hidden, whom God has hedged in? For my sighing comes instead of my bread, and my groanings are poured out like water. For the thing that I fear comes upon me, and what I dread befalls me. I am not at ease, nor am I quiet. I have no rest, but trouble comes. Hey, church family, Pastor Aaron here. Grateful to have uh, another opportunity to open up God's word and learn from him and to look at our own hearts in light of the truth of God's word. And if you're, if you're just joining us uh, for the first time online, uh, just want you to know that God deeply loves you and has good for you. And uh, if you're searching for something, uh, we, we as a church, we deeply believe that Jesus is the most fundamental thing that the human heart is searching for. And so I'm grateful to get to open the book of Job. And, 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 you know, a few months ago when our leadership team, uh, gave the thumbs up to do the book of Job, one of the things, uh, that some were concerned about was that the book of Job is, is awfully bleak. It's very dark in this season that we've been in with global pandemics and racial unrest, uh, and injustices in the United States of America. Uh, man, is it really a good time to look at something so bleak like Job? And I have good news and bad news for you. The, the bad news is yes, the book of Job is fairly bleak at times. We're going to get into some of that sadness and sorrow today, but, but one of the the things that's, that's good news is it helps us to, if we understand that the book of Job is not fundamentally about suffering. Job's suffering is not what the book of Job is really about. It actually is about some deeper layer things. And so today and next week, we're going to explore really what's deeper, what's underneath the suffering. It's the suffering is a, is a, is a, is a tool, if it were to kind of bring up some of these deeper and larger questions. And so today we're going to look at Job and then next week we're going to look at the friends and we're going to see some things that they, they get wrong and that they need to learn as a result of this season of suffering. And so before we dive in, uh, let's pray together. God, I ask that you would help me to speak with clarity, to speak with truth, to speak with compassion. And Lord, I pray that you would help us each to have open hearts to receive what it is that you want to, to say to us and what you want to do in our hearts. God, I pray you would give us the courage to do that kind of self-examination today. And so Lord, would you make your presence known in our hearts and in our minds. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Okay, the, the book of Job, if, if you're familiar with it, we've been talking about it now for a few weeks, you understand that Job, something happens to him over the course of the book. I want to answer this question simply, what is it about Job and his own heart that lands him in trouble at the end of the book? Because at the beginning, 
man, he starts off great, doesn't he? I mean, we, we see the first verse in Job chapter one, that Job is a man of complete integrity, someone who feared God and, and turned away from evil. And you go down to, to verse eight, uh, the Lord Yahweh brings up to the, this Satan figure, this adversary, this challenger. And he, Job, uh, the, the Lord, I should say, brings up Job and says, have you considered my servant Job? There's no one else on earth like him, a man of perfect integrity who fears God and turns away from evil. And then you, you get this first round of suffering and, and Job, instead of cursing God, it says he praises God. He said, you know, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away, but blessed be the name of the Lord. And throughout all of this, the, the, the divinely inspired narrator tells us that Job did not sin or blame God for anything. You keep going into chapter two, God brings up Job again to the challenger and says, have you considered my servant Job? He still holds on to his integrity, even though you incited me against him for no reason. And then God allows the challenger to affect uh, Job's physical health and his physical well-being and he's suffering greatly and his wife comes to him. And then Job has that line that we looked at last time. It says, should we accept only good from God and not adversity and Again, the, the divinely inspired narrator says throughout all of this, Job did not sin in what he said. That's a pretty good start over and over and over again from the mouth of God himself and from the, the Holy Spirit inspired narrator. We are to understand that Job is a good man. And yet if you flip over to the end of the book in chapter 38, you start to see uh, things like this. When, when God shows up and starts to uh, correct Job, God says, you know, who is this? Who, who do you think you are to obscure my counsel with your ignorant words? Get ready to answer me like a man. I will question you and you will inform me. Or in Job chapter 40, when, when Job finally has a chance to respond to what God says to him, he says, you know, I, I am so insignificant. I, I can't answer you. I put my hand over my mouth. I've spoken once. I will not reply. I've spoken twice, uh, but I can add nothing. In, in, and then again, God goes for a second round. Get ready to answer me like a man. When I question you, you will inform me. I, like you need to give some, some answers here, buddy. In chapter 42, verse six, Job, he says, I reject my words and I am sorry for them. I am dust and ashes. And then, so, so, so God speaks so highly of Job and then God corrects Job. But then if you want to add one more confusing element in verse seven of chapter 42, after the Lord had finished speaking to Job, he turns to Eliphaz, the Temanite, one of the three friends, and says, I am angry with you and your two friends, for you have not spoken truth about me as my servant Job has. It is no wonder that sometimes people are confused by the book of Job. Is he an amazing man? Is he an idiot who deserves rebuke? Did he speak wrong about God? Did he speak right about God? And I think obviously the answer is, of course, he's a mixture like all of us, we all are fallen. We all are sinful in some ways, but we all are image bearers of God. And none of us is completely and, you know, utterly depraved. We're not as bad as we could be. Job is certainly one of the, the, the best of the best, um, you know, in the history of mankind, 
The, the, the author certainly wants us to know that there's nobody else like him, and, and God seems to th- agree with that assessment, and yet he's a mixture. Job has some areas of his heart that need to be worked on. And so if we can help, if we could try to understand what it is that he gets right and what it is that he gets wrong, I think it's going to help give us some insight into our own hearts. And one of the ways we're going to do that is today by doing a contrast between Job chapter 3 and Job chapter 31. There's something that happens in this contrast between Job 3, which is Job's lament, and, and it might be the saddest chapter in the entire Bible. And then Job's uh, final speech in chapter 31, where he gives this speech of his own defense. There's something in this contrast that really will help us uh, to, see, uh, to see what happens in Job's heart. And I, I think there's something helpful for each and every single one of us here. I'm going to do this. I'm actually going to read through the entirety of Job chapter 3. Because I want you just to hear the, the, the sadness of it. So again, if, you, uh, if you're with us for all of Job, they won't all be this sad. But this is sad. And this is just heartbreaking to look right into the, the, the dark, uh, just the dark cavern that is his suffering and his pain. So chapter three, verse one, I'll only make a few comments as we go. After this, after his friends showed up and after they sat with him for seven days in silence, Job began to speak and cursed, uh, uh-oh, God? No, he didn't curse God. He cursed the day he was born. Job actually uh, still does not curse God. That's what the Satan wants. That's what the challenger wants. But he doesn't curse God. He curses the day he was born. And, and by the way, this, this speech here is not really to anyone. It's not directed at God. It's not him talking to his friends. It's almost more of like a, you know, like a, a, a monologue by himself or a, like a journal entry. Job began to speak and curse the day he was born. He said, may the day I was born perish And the night that said a boy is conceived, if only that day had turned to darkness, may God above not care about it or shine light on it. May darkness and gloom reclaim it and a cloud settle over it. May what darkens the day terrify it. If only darkness had taken that night away. May it not appear among the days of the year or be listed in the calendar. Yes, may that night be barren. May no joyful shout be heard in it. Let those who curse days condemn it. Those who are ready to rouse Leviathan. May its morning stars grow dark. May it wait for daylight, but have none. May it not see the breaking of dawn for that night did not shut the doors of my mother's womb and hide sorrow from my eyes. Again, he curses the day he was born. He he wishes he had never been born, but he does not curse God. Now here is where the lament really um, is heartbreaking and just, Fair warning, this is some incredibly tragic language and to hear it uh, will probably make you feel uncomfortable. But that's the nature of what lament is. He says, why was I not stillborn? Why didn't I die as I came from the womb? Why did the knees receive me and why were there breasts for me to nurse? Now I would certainly be lying down in peace. I would be asleep. I would be at rest with kings and counselors of the earth who rebuilt ruined cities for themselves or with princes who had gold, who filled their houses with silver. Why was I not hidden like a miscarried child, like infants who never see the daylight? 
There, the wicked cease to make trouble. Wicked can't do anything anymore. And the weary find rest. The captives are completely at rest. They don't hear a taskmaster's voice, both small and greater there. And the slave is set free from his master. This is him longing for the relief of death. And again, like I said, it probably makes you feel slightly uncomfortable to, to hear these words or to read these words. If you've ever been around somebody who is in the throes of grief, it can be uncomfortable, a lament. We, we looked at the, the subject of lament just a few months ago when we were doing our kind of, you know, full online gatherings and the, the kind of topical teachings that we were looking at. And, and I defined it as an, an outward expression of an inward experience of deep pain, sorrow, or loss. An outward expression, often highly expressive. And there's nothing wrong with lament. In fact, it's commanded by God. And some of us, need to learn how to let others truly lament and grieve without trying to, you know, pat them on the head and they're there. Oh, hush now. Be, be quiet. Don't say those things. It, true lament and true grief is part of God's gift to us of, of what we do and how we deal with hardship. Verse 20, <clears throat> he finishes his lament with a series of questions. Why is light given to one burdened with grief? And life to whose existence is bitter. If people are going to just suffer, why do they even live in the first place? Those people who wait for death, but it doesn't come, who, who search for death more than for hidden treasure, who are filled with much joy and are glad when they reach the grave. Wow. Why is life given to a man whose path is hidden, whom God has hedged in? God just, you know, God made you be born. He made you live when you live. He made you live where you live. Why is life given to a man whose path is hidden and God is hedged in? Job says, I sigh when food is put before me and my groans pour out like water. And here it is. For the thing I feared has overtaken me and what I dreaded has happened to me. I cannot relax or be calm. I have no rest for turmoil has come. Isn't that interesting that Job admits in, in the midst of this suffering and in the midst of this sorrow, he admits that he lived in fear and dread before this happened. He lived with a sense of fear that he would lose his family, that he would lose his possessions, that he would lose the quite literal heaven on earth. I mean, if, if, if you were writing a novel in the ancient Near Eastern world and wanted to describe the best possible life, the most lavish, extravagant, blessed, happy life. You could not design something more uh, perfect than what Job's existence was in chapter one. And Job now admits that he was afraid that something like this could happen, that what I have dreaded now has happened to me. He feared the loss of perfection in his life. He feared, he, he, he thought, you even see as he runs around, you know, back in, again, in chapter one, running around making sacrifices for his kids of maybe perhaps they've sinned in their hearts. You see this anxiety that Job has been living with this whole time. And in this fear, it's now starting to surface and it leads Job to start to turn against God. And we start to see some things come out of his heart in this time of, of pain that really reveals where the issue is. And so there's at least four things that we can see that Job starts to accuse God of. First of all, Job accuses God of being 
unfair, of being unjust. And there's a number of places I could take you, but I'll give you one. By the way, I'm going to cover quite a bit of scripture today in, in the book of Job. And so uh, make sure you can you know, download the sermon notes and get all these references, look them up for yourselves. Try to notice some of these things as you're reading through Job as well. Job accuses God of being unfair. Chapter nine, verse 22, Job says this. He says, uh, sorry, he says, it's all the same. It's all the same. Therefore, I say, he, God, destroys both the blameless and the wicked. He just destroys them both. People who are good, people who are bad, he kills them both. When catastrophe brings sudden death, listen to this. He mocks the despair of the innocent. So God is mocking when innocent people are suffering. The earth is handed over to the wicked. He, God, blindfolds its judges. And if it isn't he, then who is it? Do you hear that accusation? God, you are not fair. You are unjust. The second thing that Job accuses God of is, is, is not being able to understand. You don't understand. You're, you're too different. You're too far out there. In chapter 10, starting in verse four, here's an example of this. Job says to God, do you have eyes of flesh? Do you see as a human sees? Are your days like those of a human or your years like those of a man? That you look for my iniquity and search for my sin, even though you know that I'm not wicked and that there's no one who can rescue me from your power. You're, you're not a human God. You don't know how hard it is to be somebody without iniquity. You don't understand. Number three, God accuses Job of, uh, sorry, Job accuses God of being controlling. Chapter 14 Verses five and six, you can see this. He says, since a person's days are determined and the number of his months depends on you, and since you have set limits he cannot pass, look away from him. Let him rest so that he can enjoy his day like a hired worker. Paraphrasing that, God you're in control of everything. You set up when we're born. You set up where we live, the parents we have, the family we have. Why don't you just leave us alone? There's another section in Job chapter seven with some really similar language. And, and, and maybe go look this up in, in your community groups this week. But in Job chapter seven, he uses this language of, you know, what is a man that you're so, uh, you think so highly of him and pay so much attention to him? But it actually recalls to mind the words of Psalm 8 where, where David sings this praise to God. When I consider the, the sun and the moon and the stars, the work of your hands, what is a man that you're mindful of him, a human being, a, a son of man that you would even care? In, in the Psalm, it's this, it's this expression of praise and awe. And in Job, he goes, why, why do you think so highly of him? You inspect him every morning. You put him to the test every moment. Will you ever look away from me or leave me alone long enough to swallow? You can see how the Bible shows us sometimes the same words can be said with completely different meanings and intentions. By the way, careful how I say this, but I, I, I just can't help but think as I hear Job say, you know, you're not fair and you don't understand me. Just leave me alone. It's, it's kind of like um, God is parenting a teenager. I'll just leave it at that. Here's the last part though. Here's, here's the, the really, really crucial and important part for us to understand 
But what is going on in Job's heart that lands him in trouble? What is it in this season of suffering? How does he go from lament, true and godly lament, into despair and, and, and accusing God of these things? I think we can see it in Job 31. I won't read the entirety of Job 31. I encourage you to read it. It's, it's, it's interesting because Job 31 is this long list of all of the things he's never done. It's his final defense. He throughout the book of Job, Job really wants a lawyer. He wants a, he wants a, a face-to-face meeting with God with a lawyer present so that he can make his case to God. God could make his case to him. Why have I been suffering? You have owed me a good life because I've been good. I shouldn't be suffering. I haven't done anything wrong. He goes down this list. He says things like, you know, I've not been lustful. I've never been dishonest. I don't even let my heart wander. I've not been an unfair boss. I have always taken care of the poor and the widow and the orphan. I'm, I'm not greedy for money. I don't worship false gods. I've never been harsh towards my enemies. I've always been hospitable and given above and beyond. I've, I've not tried to cover or hide my sins. I, I don't fear the opinions of man and I've not even exploited the earth. I've been ecologically responsible, Job says. But listen to what he says in verse 35. Listen to this, this uh, chapter 31, verse 35. Listen to what he says to God. If only I had someone to hear my case. Here is my signature. Let the Almighty answer me. Let my opponent compose his indictment. Like, write it down, sign it, tell me what I did wrong. I would carry that thing around on my shoulder. I would wear it like a crown. I would give him an account of all my steps. I would approach him like a prince. Wow. Yeah, you want to charge me with a crime? You give it to me. I'm going to print it out on a sandwich board and and put it up on a poster. And I'm going to march back and forth in front of the Capitol building on the steps of Capitol Hill because you've got nothing on me. I've not done anything wrong. What a thing to say. Job, the the ultimate thing that gets Job in trouble is his absolute 100% commitment to his own righteousness. So much so that he impugns God's justice and righteousness as well. And and we get this this answer. We get this answer. So if you keep going a little bit, we're going to meet this guy named Elihu. And I'll talk more about Elihu in the weeks to come. But but Elihu is like like a prophet of God who shows up. He's not one of the three friends. He's a precursor to God showing up. Elihu summarizes it really well. Chapter 34, verse 5. Elihu says, well... Job has, Job has declared, he said his piece. Job has said, I am righteous, yet God has deprived me of justice. Elihu sums it all up. You are so right, Job. You're so good. You're so righteous. And then actually God himself in chapter 40, verse eight says virtually the same thing to Job. Job, would you declare me guilty to justify yourself? Job moved from lament into despair because the thing that he trusted in the most was his own integrity, his own rightness, his own goodness. You know, uh, Tim Keller, pastor and author, 
has spent, you know, the last couple of decades speaking and, and writing extensively about this idea of when you are moral, when you are religious in the negative sense, when you are, when you are righteous and self-righteous, you, you really will fall into one of two ditches. You have no choice but to fall into one of two ditches. The first ditch you'll fall into is that of pride because you're living a self-righteous life and you're doing really well. And you will start to look down on others. I was just reading last week in my, my personal uh, Bible reading plan in Luke chapter 18, the, the rich, uh, um, the, the Pharisee who is praying, Lord, I thank you that I'm not like this tax collector. I, I tithe and I give and I, I do all the right things. So thank you that I'm not like this loser over here. Because you're prideful and you're moral and you're righteous. You're self-righteous. Or the other thing that Tim Keller says you'll go is you'll, you'll go into despair. Something will happen and all of a sudden you can't lean on that self-righteousness in the same way and you become extremely sad. Also in Luke 18, the rich young ruler comes to Jesus and, well, you know, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, you know, what are the commandments? And he goes, I've done all these, I've kept the commandments perfectly since I was a little boy. And so Jesus goes, well, why don't you sell everything you have and give it away to the poor? And it says the rich young ruler went away extremely sad because he was very wealthy. Something happened to rock his self-righteousness and so he went into despair. And that's what we're seeing happen here with Job. This is, this is Job's despair. He is relying upon his own righteousness. And this is really hard because have we not been told since the very beginning pages of the book of Job that Job is legitimately a good guy? He really truly is a man filled with integrity, but just because he is living a life of integrity and he's walking in a way that's blameless before the Lord does not mean that there's nothing sinful in his heart. And that does not mean that that is what he should rely upon. Christopher Ash, who, uh, man, his commentary has been so helpful. I feel like we need to take up a, a, an offering and send him a gift card or something because it just, he brings such clarity to this again. This is what Christopher Ash says. He says this, Job shows us a man with a clear conscience, walking a life of obedient faith and love for God, walking as the apostle John will put it in the light. He, he genuinely loves God. I'm convinced Job really does have true saving faith in God. He loves God. And yet, when suffering comes, there are residues of sin that come to light. The human heart is deceitful, like the prophet Jeremiah says, and a, a clear conscience is not a guarantee of sinlessness. Indeed, the human heart has been compared to a container of water with residue of mud at the bottom. When all is calm, we see the clear water at the top and, and think there is just pure water within. But when the container is stirred and shaken, the mud swirls around and before long becomes visible, making it clear that all was not as pure as had been thought. It is therefore possible to have a clear conscience and to walk in daily repentance of known sin while yet being a sinner at heart. This is the case for Job, and it explains how he can be at the same time affirmed and rebuked. Indeed, affirmed for speaking rightly of God while being rebuked for speaking wrongly about God. I hope you're following with me. I hope you're tracking with me because the big idea for today really is this. 
The most spiritually dangerous place that you could be is convinced of your own righteousness. The most spiritually dangerous place you could be is, is just convinced that I am righteous. I have nothing that I need to repent for. There's nothing wrong with my heart. You know, there's another ancient patriarch. You know, the, the book of Job we've mentioned is a very ancient uh, story. It's before there was a nation of Israel. It's before there was, you know, the 12 tribes living in the promised land. In fact, this doesn't even take place in the promised land of Canaan. Um, but there's another man who lived possibly around the same time as Job. And it's the patriarch Abraham, the father of the people of Israel. And, and Abraham, we're told repeatedly throughout the scripture that, that what Abraham did that God loved so much, Abraham just simply trusted God. Abraham, we, see, we were told, believed God. And because of that trust and because of that belief, it, it, the scripture tells us, it's repeated it, oftentimes in the New, New Testament, Paul loves to repeat this, that Abraham trusted God and it was credited to him as righteousness. There's something in the nature of God, who God is, that he loves to share his righteousness with those who believe. He loves to share even his very own righteousness just through a simple act of faith and trust that that's what God is like. And what's so amazing is, is Abraham did that. He, he trusted in God and no, Abraham was not perfect. He was, he was quite a mess. He was not as righteous as Job was, but he trusted in God's righteousness. And that's what made him righteous before God. That's what made him right. That's what gave his, his life. Uh, that's what gave him the ability to say that his life matters and have meaning before God because he trusted in God's righteousness. And friends, there is no greater expression of that gift of righteousness than Jesus Christ himself. Jesus is the ultimate expression of God sharing his righteousness with us. If only Job had known about Jesus. Again, Job has genuine faith, but he doesn't have the full picture. How fortunate are we, friends? We've got the fuller picture. See, see, Job says, God, I wish you would just leave me alone. But God says, no, I'm gonna, I'm gonna send my son. I'm not gonna leave you alone. I'm not gonna just leave you to your own devices, to your own wickedness or your own righteousness. No, I'm gonna get involved. And so he sent his son and, and Job said, God, you don't understand because you're not a man. You're not a human like we are. And so God became a man. Jesus of Nazareth, he took on flesh and came and dwelt among us. And, and Job says, well, I've never done anything wrong, but, but he had done some things wrong. And yet Jesus comes and quite literally never does anything wrong. No sinful actions, no sinful words, no sinful motivations or thoughts of the heart. And Job said, God, you're unjust. You're not fair. You're not being uh, just and yet the cross proves God's justice, that God does not turn a blind eye to sin and that he poured out all of his wrath and all of that justice on his very own son on the cross. And then Job longed for the peace of death, but Jesus rose from the grave to say there's an even greater peace and it's that of resurrection life and new creation. 
and where Job wanted a transactional relationship with God. I'll be good, you bless me, I'll do my part, you do your part. God sent Jesus full of grace and mercy to give us that which we don't even deserve a full inheritance of the riches of heaven to give us eternal life forevermore with our heavenly father. That's some good news. God made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Friends, you and I are beckoned by the message of the gospel to trust that God is the kind of God who likes to share his righteousness with us. And where Job put his ultimate trust was in his own righteousness. Friends, you and I are called to despair of our own righteousness and throw ourselves at the mercy of God Almighty because Jesus shows us that even when we are not righteous, God delights in sharing his righteousness with us if we will simply confess our sin and place our trust in him. God, I've got no other plea. There's no other thing. There's nothing else that will justify my life and my existence. There's nothing else that makes me right. There's nothing else that proves that I'm okay. It is simply the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Man, if only Job had known about Jesus. How, how, how privileged are we that we know about Jesus? So let me just, let me bring this to bear in our lives. What should we do when we see this about Job? Job was a man of, of integrity. He was blameless in his actions. He really was. He really genuinely was a man of integrity. So does that mean we shouldn't try to live a good moral life because it doesn't matter and we're going to still suffer anyways? And besides, Jesus died to cover all our sins? No, absolutely not. We are to live a life, especially once we know about what Jesus has done for us. Of course we're to live a life of integrity and good deeds and serving the poor and, and loving your children. Where, like, of course we want to do that. I want to urge each and every single one of you to live lives that are godly and, and blameless before him. Absolutely. We're not trying to be, you know, some sort of like rotten Christians here or something like that. But here's what I do want you to know. Do not ever put your faith in your ability to do that well. So like, yeah, live a godly life, but don't put your trust in your ability to live a godly life. And furthermore, never lose the ability that, that healthy questioning of your own heart and your own motives. You know, there's a, there's a verse in, uh, in 1 Corinthians 4 where the apostle Paul says, he says, I'm not conscious of anything against myself. Like, I'm just not aware of anything that anyone could accuse me of. I'm, I'm living a life of integrity. But then he says, but I'm not justified by this. Oh, if only Job had been able to read the apostle Paul. I'm not justified by this. That's not what makes me okay. It is the Lord who judges me. Sorry, Eminem, uh, Paul said it first. So he says, so don't judge anything prematurely before the Lord comes, who will bring both bring to light what is hidden in darkness and reveal the intentions of the hearts. Like God is the one who's going to sort it all out. Don't judge prematurely. Don't, don't, whether that's even yourself or others, like you just need to let God be the one who sorts that out. And then praise will come to each one from 
God. I love that because it shows us that, you know, even if we're, even if we're over, like I know some people who do a pretty darn good job of living a good moral Christian life. They don't, they don't cheat. They don't steal. They don't rob. You know, what's the old joke? They don't, uh, you know, drink or chew or go with girls who do. It's, it's dumb. I'm sorry. But you know, like the, the whole thing, like I know some people who are just genuinely godly, but the more godly you get, the more uh, integrity you have in your heart, the more you should recognize that our own hearts are weak and a fickle thing. And apart from the grace of God, apart from his gift of righteousness, we are not worthy to come into his presence. So yeah, I want you to live a life of integrity. Just don't put your trust in that. Your only hope is Jesus' blood and righteousness. Your, your own heart, you need to look with a little bit of skepticism at your own heart because the heart is deceitful. Let me just give you a few examples because, okay, self-righteousness affects us all. I'll close with this. Self-righteousness affects us all. There's a, there's a little, you know, there's a little praying Pharisee. There's a little rich young ruler. There's a little Job in each one of our hearts. It just looks differently. So for some of you, you know, it's a little bit more blatant. It's a little bit more obvious. You know, you, you think thoughts or you say things like, what's wrong with those people? Why can't they, you know, why can't they get it together? And maybe you wouldn't say this, but the inference is, you know, like I do. You can think that towards non-Christians. What is wrong with those people out there? Like, like, like you're surprised that non-Christians don't act like Christians. That's just pride and self-righteousness. But you also can do it to other Christians where you look down at, at other people and maybe people who are more morally weak or they make more mistakes or they do different things and, and you're sitting there looking down on them. Meanwhile, Jesus told us, again, go read Luke 18. The, 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 the tax collector is beating his chest and saying, have mercy on me, oh Lord, a sinner. And Jesus explicitly says, only one of those two people went home justified before the Lord that day. You're going to catch it coming out of your mouth. Man, what? I oh, can't believe they did that. Oh, what's wrong with it? Like you're looking down on other people. That's self-righteousness. But that's the blatant version. There's a lot of other subtle versions. So I hope to get a few others of you, myself included here. Some of you, your self-righteousness comes out when you hit a time of suffering and you say things like, why is this happening to me? I don't deserve this. When hardship comes, your self-righteousness shows because you assume that you would be exempt from not only the hardships that are common to all of mankind, but even, especially if you're a follower of Jesus, he guaranteed us that we would face trials and tribulations. Why is this happening to me? This shouldn't be happening to me. That's self-righteousness. You're trusting in your own righteousness to give you a smooth and a simple life instead of trusting in Christ's righteousness to give you eternal life. Some of you, it's, it's your own ability to work. Something happens, trouble happens. You think, okay, I'm just going to work myself out of this mess. I'll just work harder. I'll put in more hours. Some of you, it's not like the work of the hands or the, the energy. It's the work of the mind. I'll just sit and I'll think and I'll work and I'll ponder and I'll think and I'll stress and I'll work and I'll ponder. And, and eventually if I just think hard enough and long enough, I'll be able to solve all the problems and everything will be okay. That is self-righteousness. That is self-reliance. The Lord alone Scripture tells us never sleeps or slumbers. The Lord alone knows all things and has all wisdom and all knowledge. You're not God. And when you try to deal with your problems by just working harder or thinking harder, you're showing your self-reliance and your self-righteousness. For some of you, it's good deeds. 
acts of service, helping other people. You're, you're, this is, this one sounds weird because it's hard. It's a subtle one, right? How can I be self-righteous if I'm, if I'm giving things to the poor? Well, first of all, you could be doing it to earn praise from other people. You know, Jesus talked about when you give, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Don't, don't serve other people and give to other people and help, you know, contribute to the poor and, and take care of widows and orphans because you like those attaboys that you get from other people. It can be very self-righteous that way. But it also can be very self-righteous because at night, if you didn't have an opportunity to serve somebody or do something and you're starting to fret and to worry like you didn't do enough, I should have done more, I should have, you feel guilty and you feel fearful and if I can't help somebody and I can't do all these things to help somebody, who even am I and what's my identity? Friends, Jesus is the one who came to seek and to save the lost. He invites us into his mission, but it's still his mission. And if you are stressing over, I didn't help people enough, I didn't do enough, or, or boasting in that, that's self-righteousness. And then lastly, some of you, when you mess up and you sin, instead of saying, gosh, I messed up, I sinned, you try to justify it. Maybe like Job, you know, you're, well, you don't understand how hard it is. You don't understand my circumstances. You don't know what it's like living in my, in my shoes. You don't know what I've been through. And while there may be genuine uh, difficulties there, when you sin, you sinned because you wanted to. You sinned because that's what your heart wanted. And so don't justify yourself. Don't, don't try to say, well, I'm, it was just, I'm okay. That's self-righteousness showing up. Self-righteousness can show up in a lot of different ways. It's like, uh, you know, that pride, that prideful, self-righteous sort of spirit. Again, Tim Keller calls it the, uh, the carbon monoxide of sins because it's this silent killer that just creeps in and just, you don't even really notice it, you don't even see it, and it just comes in and it poisons and affects everything. And friends, the good news is that the gospel of Jesus, uh, Jesus Christ is like, a, it's like one of those like nine volt battery carbon monoxide detectors that comes in and says, hey, listen, knock all of that off, despair of your own righteousness, hand it over to God and trust that he's the kind of God who delights in gifting his righteousness to those who believe. If you have yet to put your faith in Jesus, if you have yet to believe, today is the day. Quit trying to work to earn your salvation. Quit trying to do enough to justify your life and your existence before God and simply bow the knee and say, God, I receive your gift. And then we can have peace, even in times of suffering, peace that, that we wish our, our brother Job could have had. And peace that does eventually come to him after this time. But, but may the Lord help us to learn from what Job didn't know. And may we respond to Jesus with faith and thanksgiving. God, I thank you that you are the kind of God who delights in sharing your righteousness with us. You delight in giving grace and mercy. You're, you're, you describe yourself, God, as abounding in steadfast love. And so we despair of our own righteousness now, Lord God. We, we don't claim that our integrity and our right behavior is what will save us. We simply place our faith and our trust that you are the kind of God who delights in sharing your righteousness, that you delight in showing grace and mercy. We thank you for that gift. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you died and you rose again to give us that kind of assurance. Help us to live like it, not looking down on others in pride, not despairing or, or anxious in our hearts, but simply 
believing you, that you love us. In Jesus' name, amen.